Hello and welcome to episode 139 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I'm Anthony Malakian and I'm joined by James Rundle. Hello, Hello. James. Yes. Um, so this week on the podcast, in just a little bit, Eric Bernstein, uh, president of Broadridge Asset Management Solutions, he's going to join. Uh, we talked with him about some of the uh, some of the challenges that buy-side firms are facing facing in the Asia-Pacific region. Some of the problems buy-side firms are facing in the Asia-Pacific region. No one asked you. <laughs> and then uh, we also discussed uh, some, uh, in- yeah, some interesting thoughts on blockchain and artificial uh, AI development um, throughout the region and just uh, globally um, as a whole. So yeah, if you want to listen to some smart conversation, just please skip ahead. That's the intelligent technology talk. Uh, but first, uh, first, we first. Have these two idiots and Sean Connery talking yeah. about <laughs> James and I. We are going to look at um, two companies who are in some way or another kind of changing directions. Uh, James, I think we should start with IHS Market. Yeah. Um, okay. So some of you might remember. I think it was back in May, I believe. That. Um, yeah, May 2017, right? Or May 2018, yeah, it was a few May. months ago. That um, Market acquired Iprio, Iprio? I'm not sure how you pronounce Iprio, it. Yeah. Um, and then at the same time said they were going to sell MarketServe. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar, that's their derivatives post-trade processing business. Um, that really is kind of like a nerve center of the markets. It handles 130,000 actions per day, um, connects to thousands of buy-side firms and um, 100 dealers. A pretty big part of the market. Um, under that market serve banner, you have DS Match, and you have mm-hmm. Market Wire, you have Market Trade Manager, all used by buy and sell side firms. Yep. Which um, was a pretty significant shift for IHS Market, I guess. Really, considering they grew up in the derivatives market, you know, they originally started as a, I think, like a CDS pricing mm-hmm. uh, information provider, and really occupied a central part in trading. Um, and now they were just like, well, you know, we don't see it. any synergies between these and our other areas of focus as being substantive. I guess taking that into consideration, market as a company, bigger than financial markets, IHS market as an entity, much bigger than that. It's got like automotive, healthcare, everything else to worry about. Yeah, sure. So uh, they started a sort of a, I guess, a bidding process where they talked to a bunch of potential acquirers about, you know, getting terms together. Um, Kicking the tires kind of thing. Yeah, then we went into market service, spoke to Brad Levy and various others about their new technology platform called MarketServe. Um, which went trade to press. Server was oh sorry um, yeah about trade servers the yeah. new platform under market serve that's yes. it um, which we thought was kind of weird at the time right like you're investing all this money into this huge technology overhaul you're going to be sold what's going on yeah fast forward a few weeks um, irritatingly just as we go into press with a feature talking about how market is selling market serve <laughs> and uh, Lance Uggler the CEO goes onto a third quarter earnings call and says um, that they're not selling it now yeah. Um I guess, uh, well, his reasoning was that they failed to find an acquirer to purchase the asset on acceptable terms. Um, Whether that was the price or whether it was with them wanting to retain a stake in it afterwards, I'm not sure. He hinted it was that, both those things. Well, let me, you know, so am I, the way I kind of read this is that they either view it in one of two ways. One, their price tag, they way, way overvalued for something that has yet to be really delivered. And if you're going to have market serve, this whole new platform is going to be over it. As he said, it's going to take over everything. It will become the platform for it. So 
they hadn't even launched it. September 10th, they officially launched just the first little piece of it. But just, this is going yeah. to be a long, arduous process it's going Just forward. NDFs, right? And they're not yeah. even putting FX options yeah. until next year. Yeah, yes. until next year. And then credit, they got to wait for the DTCC's yeah. uh, blockchain to go live. So there's a lot of moving parts there. So either one of two things, I guess, and maybe there's a third one, but tell me if I'm wrong, um, but is that they were vastly way over uh, pricing this and for something that has yet to be delivered, or two, they saw that this actually that that this is actually interesting. This can really change the full culture of what we're offering, and if we just hold on to this and wait and build this out and have this new platform. If this is as successful as we think it will be, this will create new business, will create new avenues, new opportunities. Like we said, the analytics business um, in the article that we spoke about when we when we first previewed uh, the trade serve launch, you know, toward the end, you know, they were saying about uh, Frank Tarsillo and Brad Levy were saying, you know, one day this can become kind of a new analytics play for us and, and kind of open up new avenues, new, um, new areas of business for us. So maybe we're saying, you know what, we're not getting the kind of price that, you know, we kind of feel this should be. Let's just hold on to it. Let's get this going. And then if we can get in that analytics space where everybody else is trying to go, maybe then our price tag will be, it will be worth it for us down the road. I don't know. Do you, or do you think there's a third avenue there? Yeah, I mean, I hadn't actually considered that second one. And it is interesting you say that because in response to one of the analyst questions, he does actually say, um, well, there is some stuff we can do with analytics down the road or on FRTB and that kind of thing mm-hmm. as well. Um, which, again, we did it kind of late in the day, um, and it didn't really register with me. Oh, he's talking about the analytics piece, which yeah. they haven't really talked about before. Um, I, I don't know. I think, I, again, this is pure conjecture, because market has been uh, less than helpful in providing someone to talk to, even on background about this, so this is just from our reading the situation. I think what happened was that they had a few calls about it. They decided, well, we can get out of this business, we can sell it. When it reached more in-depth discussions, market probably said, well, look, We'll sell you it, but um, we still want to have uh, some kind of, you know, um, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Um, some kind of skill in the game here. Yeah. Um, you know, we want to have some kind of minority stake or whatever, and maybe the acquirers are just like, well, no, if we're going to pay X billion for it or whatever we want from it, or X hundred of million, um, then it's going to be ours. Um, yeah. Secondly, I also think operating something like market serve is a very specialized business and it's very, very tough to do. And I think maybe it seems attractive from the outside. And then you actually look into what goes into handling that every day and the amount of It is a monolith, of, you know, as they say repeatedly. Exactly, it's a monolith. And now they're moving to a new technology base, which as anyone who's ever covered technology or has worked in technology can tell you, you never know exactly what's going to happen. There's going to be hiccups. There's going to be problems. There's exactly. Going to be, it's just it's just what comes with the with the process. So I mean, if you buy this thing, you're suddenly inheriting this brand new platform that's changing technology, um, that is systemically important, that is going to attack regular uh, sorry attract attract regulatory attention. Yeah, go ahead, make down. fun of me. <laughs> Whatever, Sean. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, um, you know, it, almost it's kind of not worth the hassle, I guess, in a lot of ways. Some of the more competitive firms as well, I think, maybe, who may have bought it, like Next Group, for instance. Um, this would seem to fit perfectly with what they do, um, with Trioptum and everything else. They're now being acquired by the CME, so that's out the window. They're not going to yep. do a major acquisition at that point. Um, and yeah, maybe um, there's only so many players out there that are available. And- yeah, and also, where do you go with it as well? Like, I mean, yeah, you can do the data business. That's fine. That's what everyone's doing. But at the end of the day, 
you're dependent on a lot of other players in the market. In the US, you depend on the DTCC, as is evidenced by the fact they can't even launch credit on this platform yeah. until they build a blockchain interface for the TIW. Yeah. Um, and it might have just made more sense, I think, for them to think, right, okay, well, let's get through this technology upgrade, um, and then maybe we'll revisit in the future. In fact, it does yeah. actually kind of very, very much imply that if anybody does want to buy it from us, give us a call, and we'll see what we can do. Yeah. Yeah, but for now, we're happy to manage it. Like, we'll yeah. just keep it going. Yeah, it, just to kind of reverse back just to the analytics piece of it. So this is from an article uh, where we, uh, we were able to kind of go and do a deep dive into what TradeServe would look like. Wrote about this um, uh, at, the begin- at the beginning of uh, September, I guess it was. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the, the headline is uh, IHS Market Overhauls Derivative Nerve Center with Trade Center Launch. Go check it out. We'll link to it. Yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. One quote uh, toward the end of Frank Tarsillo and looking toward the future. <clears throat> Excuse me. Quote. We store all of the client's transactional data today. It's all there sitting in our world. What does the customer want? They want a copy of that data in their world. Why do they want a copy of that data in the world? They want it so that they can perform analytics, scrubbing, whatever it is. This is high compute that's required on the customer side. While we're all moving to the cloud and the cloud gives some uh, general physical advantage, wouldn't it be interesting if we could segment in the cloud a safe space or a true sandbox for our customers to come into our environment in a secure setting and query and look at data in our environment? He stressed then that this is well down the road, if ever, you know, if, if yeah. it ever happens. But I think that they there's certainly an analytics play here that they're going to be looking at for the future, and maybe they they maybe if 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 you want to look at this from a pot like maybe they're the ones saying no we actually have something good here we don't want to talk to you i think that's kind of where maybe they're kind of seeing that there could be some value that they don't quite understand yet yeah and you don't want to give something away before it's i don't know before it's come to uh to fruition or whatever yeah and and also gives them experience in two key emerging technologies right which is microservices and well not merging it's already there but in important technologies, microservices and distributed ledger. Mm-hmm. So they get to have the test bed on market serve for this, like they're doing it, we'll get the expertise there, and then great, you know, afterwards we can apply it to the rest of our business. Yeah. So, yeah. The other uh, interesting change, or uh, kind of, uh, th- this one uh, wasn't based off of anything kind of breaking news, but um, Usman Khan, uh, CTO, co-founder of Algomi, came in and spoke with us about just uh, the, the plans for the company going forward. And one of the kind of the interesting things, which the writing was always there, but I guess he kind of really kind of laid out in detail how they were going to go about this, is kind of this move away from the honeycomb offering, uh, which was you know kind of like this darling of the fintech world. I, th- I know it won one or two of our awards in the past. It won an yeah. award for I think Risk um, oh, it, awards all over the place. Yeah, like all over the place. Uh, you know, and not only for that, just for being kind of who they were. I think in a lot of ways. And everybody so. in the industry was really really excited about it. They're shifting away from it after they bought um, the Alpha platform from Alliance Bernstein in May 2007. That was the May 2017. May 2017, not May 2007. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was the date that I was talking about. Um, after they made that acquisition, they kind of then started to go about, um, first of all, they were getting investments from a lot of different companies in 2017 from Euronext, uh, Alliance Bernstein, S&P Global. And then uh, this year, um, they brought on uh, EuroClear, yep. a partnership there. Um, and they're kind of just shifting to being toward this alpha platform where Honeycomb doesn't go away. They built out this infrastructure, these series of tubes, I guess, that connect to all the banks, stuff like that. But now they're actually kind of trying to connect into the bank's um, kind of offering and become... 
I don't know, how would you, I guess, describe it for the sell, for the buy side? They become kind of the network for the buy side. It's kind of... Yeah, the kind of informational kind of uh, uh, kind of network, I guess. It's kind of a weird transition, right? Like, I mean, I'm trying to figure, like, whether it's a pivot to the buy side or whether it's still serving the sell side but just giving them exactly what they want on the buy side. I mean, it's kind of like Algami, as you say, was like a fintech darling first few years. Maybe the last couple of years increasingly looks like a hot mess. Like, I mean, it's been sort of... Uh, <laughs> Its financial results were disappointing last year. Um, well, 2016, Taylor. do we know if the 2017... No, I did look, that? and they haven't filed them yet, actually. So, okay. uh, uh, chop, chop, boys. Um, but, uh, you know, they had disappointing financial results um, last year mm-hmm. uh, for the 2016 full year, you're right. Um, then they were giving away parcels of the company to S&P, to, uh, you know, AB for that yeah. strange sale of Alpha. Um, and uh, and then Stu Taylor sort of unceremoniously quit, and they installed... Yeah. Uh, Scott Eaton from uh, Market Access Europe. I guess it's kind of a, a strange shift. I think talking to to, to Usman, um, it did feel like they're kind of settling a little bit in terms of what they want to do now, and it, I guess it kind of makes sense, right? They have the underlying technology that had a lot of uptake but never really caught on, mm-hmm. um, and now they're thinking, okay, well, who actually needs this? Okay, the buy side doesn't need yeah, this. Because the sell side doesn't need that honeycomb offering necessarily the way that they thought that they were going to need it back in 2012. With the advent of Mifid two, with all this, um, with, with all the requirements that the that that the sell side had to build out on its own, essentially they built built their own kind of research platform, kind of, yeah. and so it was the Honeycomb network. I guess wasn't as valuable or, or changed what was needed. I think a lot of things came out that were similar, right, at the time as well, and a lot of plugins for various chat programs. Um, you know, you had sort of. Inequities, at least, and not fixed income. You had negotiation-based venues for block trading that came out that were built on the same principles. Yeah. Um, and maybe I think the idea seemed like great at the time. Maybe when they were working at uh, well, it was UBS they used to work for. Um, and then when they actually built it, the banks were like, oh, okay, cool. Well, you know, it wasn't quite the kind of slam dunk we thought it was going to be, and I yeah. guess we'll support it. But, I mean, you know, and I know from talking to a few people at companies that have invested in Algami that... Um, sometimes the perception is a little bit sort of lukewarm, should yeah. we say, um, at the success rate. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this pivot, I think, could work. Um, I think well, now, so now they're basically signed, because, what was it, at the very end of 2017, they signed up uh, BNY Mellon and uh, HSBC. HSBC yep. And then now you're adding Euroclear. So you kind of get these glo- the three big global custodians. Yeah. You know, kind of, certainly North America, Europe, and Asia. With I mean, I do think that this is something that, maybe the custodians could do themselves as a utility and not necessarily need to use a paid-for service like I'll gave me for. Um, and they're also going to need, if they want to make it work, they're going to need a hell of a lot more custodians on board. Mm-hmm. Not just, I mean, I know Boney and HSBC are huge, and so is Euroclear, obviously. But, you know, you need your clear streams and you need your northern trusts, and you need everyone else involved as well for this to actually work, I think, and get a yeah. critical mass of information. Otherwise, you're only seeing, you know, three parts of the market, albeit large ones. Um, yeah. And this doesn't really solve the problem that buy side guys have of like, okay, well, we're already shipping out our axes to our brokers, um, you know, who are trying to source these bond for us and everything else. I'm now you're just adding another thing for me to send it out to. You're not just giving me a one-stop shop where I can go in and I can just put in what I want and it will just tell me where the, uh, where the liquidity is. You know, it's, it's not necessarily... Um, and also the fact of the matter is that they're... They are introducing execution capability for, like through a plug-in, right? So yep. um, it'll connect to market access to trade web um, and what have you, but they're not becoming an execution venue. So yes, you can click to trade through the platform, but you can't do it through the platform, which is a problem, I think. You know, if you're going to do this, 
you need the ability to bring counterparties together um, to discuss anonymously and then execute and then afterwards do your reporting and everything else that's required. So Doesn't that become then a tougher lift though? Because then also you become a regulated entity, then all yep. of a sudden now you're competing with market access and trade web rather than being a partner with them. Doesn't that seem kind of foolhardy? That, that well, no, but you would still th- execute through the platform. What I'm saying is like, you know, the workflow needs to, I mean, you wouldn't actually, you know, list the bonds or anything else on market access or, or, or like market access to trade web do. Yeah. Um, or have a consolidated <laughs> tape or whatever. But, um, what you would do is have the functionality to do all of your workflow through the program, whether it's on a pre-trade or a post-trade basis. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, they're just talking about adding something, the ability to go from there to market access and trade world, right? Yeah. So it just maybe. becomes another screen. It becomes another program you have to run on top of everything else you're doing. And all of your, if you're a Eurobonds trader, isn't that though models. the first step? So again, trust me, my knowledge of the uh, secondary corporate corporate bond market is truly next to nothing. Yeah. Um, I just write articles and let them say everything, you know, so I, I don't have an opinion here, but isn't this, doesn't this have to be, because, you know, just speaking with uh, some of the people involved, you know, as the way I understand it, uh, most corporate bonds, they trade once, uh, when they're issued, they, they don't really trade again, yep. uh, those bonds just sit there inside of custodians until as maturity, owners right? collect, so, yeah. yeah, the quarterly uh, coupons and hold on to them until they mature. So here, you're kind of asking the bondholders whether they would be interested in making their inventory visible to interest buyers on the Algomi Honey, or well, on the Algomi Alpha, Alpha yeah. network. That seems like a good first step, no? Or is it kind of the same no, thing no, with no. Honey- Honeycomb? Seemed like a good first step, and then it never got off the ground. I think it is a good first step, um, but I think there are other steps that need to be taken as well. I mean, mm-hmm. we're moving to a state now where. A lot of the big companies are doing all of this as just an enterprise-grade piece of software, which is all, everything, all singing, all dancing. Um, unless you have a very particular niche. And some of the stuff that Usman was talking to us about that wasn't in the story, but um, you know, he's talking about applying machine learning to um, figure out sort of uh, the variance in um, in price bands on bonds, which yeah. sounded really cool. Like that yeah. kind of stuff is interesting. That's yeah, new well, decision trees, sort of like, uh, kind of stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. This is just like an information network, and it's the same thing as I mean, it's not the same thing as, as Honeycomb was, but it's a similar lines, right? Yeah. Um, so they're gonna have to do something pretty impressive, whether they sign up huge amounts of people or get some kind of critical mass of the information front to make it work. Um, this is a big pivot for them, um, and a big change in what they're doing. Um, I guess we'll see if it's successful or not. So, yeah. yeah. So you can check out that offering. Uh, uh, Usman goes into detail about how, how the platform will work eventually, but that's these rollouts aren't going to happen until 2019. So that's still a little bit down the road. Yeah. And so, yes, all this is theoretical right now uh, with Although, these platforms. As I realized today, not too much down the road because yeah. it's now nearly October. Just wow. about. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so that's all we got on our end. Um, as you can tell, that that conversation not intelligent at all. But stay tuned. <laughs> it's wild speculation. Stay tuned. Yes, exactly. Reckless speculation. Um, stay tuned. Though uh, next up we have Eric Bernstein of Broadridge, and again we're going to talk about APAC and a little bit about blockchain and AI. Um, and then we will see you all back here next week. Cheers. All right, and now I am joined by Eric Bernstein. He is the president of Broadridge Asset Management Solutions. And today uh, we're gonna discuss some of the data challenges and just general challenges facing um, firms in the APAC region. And, but then we'll also kind of connect it to uh, some of the similarities and differences that firms in Europe and in North America are facing as well. But first of all, Eric, thanks for being on today. Thanks for having me. 
So I guess to start off with, you know, generally speaking, there there's this wave of technology is coming across, where from through blockchain technologies, through artificial intelligence, and then that breaks down machine learning, natural language processing, all these different kind of things. Firms are trying to grapple with how to implement and use these kind of technologies. What are some of the, I guess, lessons learned along the way that, that you've seen in some of the, the biggest challenges, I guess, that firms are facing specific to APAC? Specific to APAC, and I would say it, it also, you know, crosses the, the water, but mm-hmm. it's at the forefront of everything is really about data. Yeah. And so all of the technology are, are really facilitators to get data from point A to point B. So what we're seeing is uh, it's about the aggregation of data. It's about mm-hmm. normalization of data. And once you have that, the conduit that you use uh, gets uh, significantly easier as you go. Is there a difference in the kind of, I guess what's the way of asking this, but has the data needs change. Obviously, alternative data has popped up. All these different kind of buzzwords are kind of popping up, but have the what kind of needs have specifically changed around the data requirement? The data is getting more and more granular. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you think about the, the, the smallest common denominator, that, that's what everyone is looking for. Yeah. So it's getting deeper and it's getting broader. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as you're looking to commingle data, especially as, as it's coming from disparate sources, it gets really uh, tricky to, to bring it all together and then use that as a means of reporting out. So if you think about, you know, who are the external consumers of the data, it's everyone from the end investor to the regulator. Uh, and at the same time, you need to be, you're owning it, you're responsible for it. Um, so as a collector of the data, it, it, the challenge is making sure you're getting it in a timely manner, making sure you're able to normalize it because it's a square peg in round hole scenario sometimes, uh, but making sure that you can get to the minimum uh, requirements uh, that you need. Okay. And obviously in a little bit, we'll talk about, you know, some of these similar data management needs, some of these technologies, obviously of what Broadridge supplies. And, but I guess first, when you're talking about APAC, what really separates it from the EU, from, you know, the North America and, and others, is just the fragmentation. It's what I always hear about yes. anyway, obviously being here in New York. So I only have so much to say, but we have our, our reporter Wei Shen out in Hong Kong. From a regulatory perspective, maybe, can you walk us through what some of the big changes that we've seen and maybe break it down by the different jurisdictions? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the biggest challenge, and it, it, it reminds me a lot of uh, what the folks from the EU used to, used to think about the U.S. They used to say things like, oh, you could just hop in a car and head over to California. Mm-hmm. Uh, same kind of thing applies when you're thinking about Asia. The distance, geographical distance, is, is huge. Uh, jurisdictionally, regulatory-wise, uh, market-wise, currencies. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have all the challenges that you would uh, think that ha- probably occurred pre-Euro uh, in Europe, um, except it's much uh, much larger a geographic area, especially if you include uh, Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and the regulations are, are different. So you have very specific uh, um, data privacy laws that are very specific to Singapore and a little bit looser in Hong Kong. So mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot of that. So we have a, a huge market in uh, hedge funds in Hong Kong, and, and as much as you may satisfy the needs from the regulators in Hong Kong, you you know you f- you fly four hours away, and all of a sudden it's a new world in You're terms of the... the way you report uh, the data leaving the country, who has access to it, where you know where it can and can't be domiciled, etc. Uh, Australia even different. Australia is a bit similar to um, Europe in the data needs. They kind of have followed 
the AIFMD and FATCA kind of model. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit similar in Australia as, as we see in the UK and in continental Europe. Uh, but the traditional Japan, Singapore, Korea, uh, Hong Kong countries all have their own requirements that are all uh, different. Okay. And does mainland China play into the space or on the hedge fund asset management space, it's not as big of a market, I guess? In terms of the number of players, China is enormous. Mm-hmm. In terms of the size of each of them, uh, they tend to be smaller. Yeah. Um, so we do see a lot of players. Uh, China has exploded in terms of private assets. Um, you know, there's a huge number of private asset players. If you look at the traditional asset managers, there's the the p- pensions like uh, CIC, which is probably the most known to the outside world. Yeah. Um, and then you have lots of small boutique style hedge funds. You do see some similarities to Hong Kong in terms of the size. Uh, you know, the the zero to fifty million dollar guys are much more prevalent there than they are in in the more mature uh, markets. Yeah. Um, uh, but so there's a lot of volume, and 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 in most cases, not a lot of size in terms of assets. One thing that you know, obviously, we've seen over here in the U.S., and that's really all I can speak to. We have reporters elsewhere, but is that. MIFID II and then just GDPR, uh, this proposed uh, SFTR, um, benchmark, all these kind of things. U.S. firms are kind of being like, wow, these really do affect us a lot. Um, And we just didn't realize how much. And so these are stories we've been worrying about for a long time, but it's that kind of playing catch up. Is that a similar story that you're hearing then unfolding in Asia? It's a bit different. I mean, in the U.S., we have uh, the good or bad news of history behind us. So, you know, a lot of the regulatory changes that occurred in the 90s, we, you know, for different asset classes, we now see, we saw in 2008 around derivatives. And we see now, you know, we saw private equity uh, go through some of that in the last three or four years. And now we're seeing uh, public assets going the same route. So I think we do have the historical perspective. And since we're so close to um, to our peers in Europe, you know, we, we follow to some degree, we follow the lead and, and they follow our lead. Um, yeah. Asia tends to be a little bit different. Um, uh, and so the needs are a little bit different in terms of the the geographic needs. But that being said, because of who their end investors are, both investors into Europe and investors into the U.S., a lot of the same rules do apply. Okay. For firms that are basically domiciled in Europe or in the U.S., because our, our listenership is obviously mainly uh, through there and our readership as well. For those that are looking to either expand in Asia or enter just a new maybe, what are some of the things that they're going to need to keep in mind going forward here in the 2018, 2019, 20? What are some of those kind of new regulatory hurdles or new requirements that they need to kind of keep in mind that you guys are discussing with clients right now? I think that the key, uh, and again, it, it makes everything else easier as you go, is uh, having you know very um, clear and very um, deep and rich data because mm-hmm. – the, the challenges that we see regulatory-wise will change over and over again. You know, sure. What is MIFID two today will be MIFID uh, ten later. Sure. Um, and so the the firms that have taken this um, you know uh, hard coded approach to solving them will have struggles anytime they anytime the regulations change or the timing or the cadence or anything else changes. So what we're you know when we we're talking to firms that are expanding into Asia, one it's a great market and firms that are. And it's a growing market. Uh, so firms are excited to go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tax regime is very different there. So there's a lot of interest in going there. At the same time, you know, um, you know the, the hurdles that they'll see 
are similar to and, and probably a little less rigid than what they've seen in, in the U.S. and in Europe. So uh, as long as they're keeping a similar practice, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be uh, consistent with what they've put up with in the past. Is it because, you know, it's funny over here in the U.S. when I would go to a conference just so I joined about nine, it'll be nine years in uh, October, actually. Um, you go to a conference and especially a buy side focus conference. And the idea of using the cloud was fairly anathema. Um, that is obviously changed up for for many most in on the asset management hedge fund space. Is that a similar trend, I guess, that's happening in Asia as far as cloud? And then there's obviously requirements as far as where you can store data, where it can be shared and stuff like that. Where, maybe talk a little bit about the cloud play in this. I would say even beyond cloud, uh, the, the clients and the, the, um, the uh, prospective clients in Asia have always been much more open-minded about cloud and newer technologies. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was always an easier sell to sell the concept uh, in, in Asia than it was here in the U.S. The U.S. tended to be a little bit more, uh, you know, wait and see mode or sure. field of dreams mode. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I think, you know, but at the same time, Asia is very separated. So you have the, the firms that are, you know, are just so small um, that they outsource predominantly, I would say, almost, almost everything. And so as a consequence of doing that, they have access to technologies that they wouldn't if they, if they bought or built in-house. Okay. Uh, so you have the, the, the separation between large and small is, is much more pronounced than it is here in, in the U.S. And, and, and in Europe. And at the same time, their appetite for new and emerging technologies is higher. It would also seem to me that they've been perhaps ahead of, or at least in, in let's say, Singapore and Hong Kong, for sure, as, as I understand it, they've been ahead of the game in these kind of fintech collaborations and creating sandboxes and addressing them from a regulatory perspective, where really in the U.S., I think that they're kind of taking some tips from, from Asia, really. Is that a fair assessment, and how does that kind of play into it? It does play into it. I mean, the, the collaboration is something that's necessary. I mean, we if you think about it, at the end of the day, you know, most firms are getting data from, you know, five places. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the fact that those five places op- operate pr- mostly in a myopic way, um, it's really hard to get uh, standards. Mm-hmm. And the standards are the, the difference between making this way easier and making it as challenging as, as it is today. And if, if you think about things like fixed connectivity and swift messaging, those are standards. Mm-hmm. And you know, getting people to agree to those types of standards took a long time, but the benefits are there. So no matter who connects via fix or via swift, piece of cake. You, you connect and go. Field one is field one. Everyone uh, knows what field one um, needs to be populated with and what the impact of not populating it is. Once we get downstream to other asset classes or other means of communicating, whether it's positions or trades or counterparty information or settlement, it's all a bit different. Mm-hmm. And as a result, uh, you know, when you think about the fact that over the last almost 30 years, the settlement cycle has only gone from five to two days, yeah. you know, where everything else on earth has gone uh, at warp speed, yeah. it goes to show you that the, the disparate data is the cause. Well, settlement. Let's uh, let's talk about blockchain. And I guess right now, huh? Um, are you, first of all, are you a personally a believer in distributed ledger technology, and that this will be kind of a revolutionary technology? Are you more of the mindset that this is an evolution, a database evolution, more or less? How do you kind of view this technology? We, you know, both me personally and you know, and brothers, we do believe in the technology. It, it, if you think about it. 
having the ability to take structured and unstructured data and communicate via uh, you know, a hub-like uh, approach is the future. Yeah. You know, if you think about today, the passing of information and all the dependencies, information is passing from counterparty, from custodian, from fund administrator to the buy side, and then back out from the buy side to all their counterparties. Uh, all, all of those points are breakpoints. And if you think about the concept of distributed ledger technology, it's everyone is accessing the same information at the same time. So you have the one source of truth, which is what everyone has been striving for. So it is evolutionary in that, um, you know, not everyone has adopted it. And if you look at any of the studies on asset managers right now, people have their head down. They're trying to get things done. And if you look at the amount of money that's being spent on, you know, regulatory compliance and, and, and the data needs that they have, you're talking 15 to 20% of their budgets. Yeah. So the likelihood that they're going to pick their head up and be thinking, you know, what is it going to look like in five or 10 years um, is challenging because, you know, with fee squeezes and everything else, people are, don't have, you know, infinite amount of funds to spend on things like blockchain. Okay. So when you attend the conferences, which I do as well, you hear a lot about, hey, it is really interesting. We do find it it will be the future. But today I'm focused on what needs to get done today. Yeah. And, and we see that a lot. Is there any – how is Broadridge kind of handling this this blockchain development process? Is this going through your own internal proof, proof of concepts? Are you partnering with the likes of an R3, somebody like that? Or are you in trying to help with some of these bank consortiums that we're seeing? How are you guys uh, dealing with it? All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Broadridge has a, a pretty wide net that we cast because of, you know, our, our core business, businesses being – you know the uh, investor communications business and and the and the sell side uh, yeah. banking uh, business. So we've done a lot as it relates to you know the clearing and settlement of things like re- uh, reverse repos. We've done uh, and gotten patents as it relates to how we're corresponding for our proxy business. Uh, the buy side piece is probably the furthest behind, not because Broadridge isn't interested in it, yeah. but more because the buy side we're not sure is ready for it. Um, so. Um, you know, it's kind of a chicken and egg scenario. But we do see, you know, as we're going bank to bank, and that's what we did, you know, uh, I think it was almost a year ago, maybe even a bit more, you know, we had some great success in the kind of interbank community. Yeah. And we see that kind of being more at the forefront plus the proxy proxy business. Yeah, I think in, you know, 2018 was, there was a lot of promise around true live blockchain implementation. We've seen a couple smaller projects, not on the scale that perhaps people were hoping for originally in 2016, 17, um, when they t- looked at 2018. 2019, you know, you use this kind of field of dreams analogy, if you build it, they will come. I would agree that on the buy side, they're not really necessarily sure that they understand the promise of it. They, they, they can see where there's going to be use case for it. But for them right now, they're saying to the sell side, you guys figure this out. All right. You guys work out all the kinks. And then once you have a product that is ready for us, we'll jump on board. Is that kind of fair to say how the asset management industry is looking at it from your perspective? I think for the most part, again, Asset management is a bit unique as well because of what traditionally sits behind the asset manager, which is the fund administrator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as a consequence of that, a lot of the reliance kind of falls to the fund admin or in the hedge fund world to the prime broker. So the, between the prime brokers and the fund admins and ultimately the sell side or the, the, ca- the counterparty, they're going to have to figure it out. The asset manager will follow. And in certain cases, as it relates to data needs, so as I need to extract data, the, the buy side will push to get that information. How they get it, whether it's through blockchain or another channel, uh, you know, is open for, uh, for discussion. But, you know, it, is the buy side going to push to get 
everything communicated via blockchain? I don't believe so. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it, there are benefits to them, but I think uh, the benefit is downstream. Okay. And I guess as far as, I don't know how to this, what are some, where do you see practical applications for asset managers by using the blockchain that maybe it doesn't exist right now today, but that you would say these are kind of some areas that you should keep an eye out for where it will have a direct effect on asset management. So take away some of the other, you know, kind of uh, retail, corporate banking, stuff mm-hmm. like that, just the asset management side. Yeah, I mean, I think without question, if you think about something as simple as communication of trade information. Mm-hmm. So, you know, most systems are, you know, whatever I started my day with, plus or minus whatever I traded, you know, equals what I'm going to start with tomorrow. And the need to communicate that out is is, is pretty widespread. So my, my kind of vision of how I think it's going to play out is, you know, I'm going to be able to drop in, you know, through blockchain my, my trades today. So my positions plus trades, I could do it in almost any file format that I ever want. It, it could be, uh, like I said earlier, structured or unstructured. And then anyone who's entitled to pick it up is going to be able to pick it up. Okay. Now, it could be my prime broker. It could be my counterparty. It could be my you know, the legal entity representing me, it could be internal. And so, you know, that mechanism of communicating is the holy grail. So having a single uh, trade, instead of saying, uh, you know, I have a trade that sits in my system, I'm going to send a file, whether it's electronic via, you know, an API, or uh, a comma delimited Excel kind of file out to my counterparty, those days are going to go away. It's ripe with errors. Um, it it's a, becomes a people business, you know, so people have to make sure it goes out. People have to make sure it could be understood coming in. Um, there are technologies that make that easier through handling exception management, but at the same time, it's, it's pretty manual and pretty error prone. Okay. So I think that's the, the obvious use case. Um, and then there are the other technologies that people are starting to adapt as, uh, or adopt as well, or adapt to around, you know, machine learning and, sure. and RPA. Yeah. Um, because there are, economies of scale that can be had and seen and felt a bit more in those areas, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, if you think about it at the most rudimentary level, you know, we've been using machine learning, uh, you know, in Outlook for probably 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact the autofill function is really machine learning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's as simple as that. I mean, I, I send you an email, it recognizes I've sent you an email before. And the second I start typing your name, it starts to fill it in. That's the, the simplest form of it. But as we go and we think about um, passing information, uh, clearing and settlement, uh, uh, transaction reconciliation, cash, cash rec, these are all going to be done by machines. I yeah. mean, uh, and then the exceptions, to some degree right now, are handled by uh, people, but at some point even the machines will handle that. And so you'll get to really a small number of, uh, of items that need to be handled by a human. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I guess that, that we've kind of seen when we go down kind of more of the AI track is that they're still more concerned. They're finding that the investment, their internal investment on it for some firms, obviously not the, the some of the quants, you know, the, the whatever have you out there, the world quants or whatever. Uh, but um, some of the investment is just not as important to them as the data um, and kind of the kind of investing in, in, in the, that, that data bedrock while you have some of these other cool tools that can help sift through it, they're not as interested, I guess, in, in dealing with that themselves. Again, we're not talking about the fancy quant shops. We're talking about you know, your, your traditional asset managers and some of your smaller mid-sized hedge funds. Is that kind of fair enough to say from what you've seen? 
It is, but at the same time, they're leveraging their partners. So, you know, the traditional hedge fund or asset manager may not have the means of, of you know, making that kind of upfront investment that you need. But at the same time, their counterparties and their partners do. And so they, they effectively have the ability to benefit from it. They may not know it's being done because at the end of the day, if my fund administrator or my partner, uh, you know, is, is doing it on your behalf and you're benefiting and you're just getting the output of it, you ne- don't necessarily know and you may not care. Uh, now, where you care is when the cost starts to shrink or you get scale, meaning I get much more for the same price. Yeah. Then they care a lot. Uh, but as long as it's being done and it's correct, you know, uh, whether it's a machine or whether it's a human being, it, it tends to, to not matter. That's my right. And then I guess if you bring everything full circle, we can break down first by APAC and then just overall Broadridge, overall asset management solution. But is there anything maybe that for listeners that are, you know, kind of hearing in that they can look forward to? What are some of the areas of development that you guys are looking to expand into, whether in APAC or more broadly, just a, a global solution that you're going to be rolling out everywhere, I guess? Yeah, I mean, we strongly believe in the centralized data source. So the data centricity as we think the future, you know, blockchain is part of it. But even without blockchain, you know, having a single source of data and having systems that are accessing that data directly instead of by that passing of that baton. You think about a race, you know, every time you pass the baton, there's a chance it hits the ground, right? Mm -hmm. And so we try to eliminate that. And so the future is a single user experience. So whether users are using, you know, modern trading technologies or back office solutions, they're logging and having that same experience and at the same time using the same data. So that um, data centricity, we think, will drive a lot of efficiencies in the market because where most dollars or bodies are is middle office, the connectivity between all the data points. Okay. And so whether you know we're doing it on their behalf or providing them technologies so that they do it themselves, that's really what's driving us. Okay. Very good. Well, Eric, I appreciate you coming into the office and sitting down with us. And uh, yeah, if you guys uh, got anything uh, interesting rolling out, please do let us know. Looking forward to it. Thanks very much. Great.